Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 216. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. We are a day late today. Did anyone notice? Oh, I'll tell you what it was. Sat down yesterday morning to record the show and... Answered a couple of emails, and before I knew it, I was doing this program, working this out, and the time just went, and it was like wasted time. Yeah, the emails at the foot was ten minutes, but I just started kind of browsing the internet, and by that time, I get myself all frustrated trying to find a program that was you can log into your, your kind of programs or you can log into your websites, you know, like LastPass. That's the one I've been using, but it seems to be failing us lately. And I wanted to go, and it was just a total drain on time. And by the time I looked up, too late to record the show and I had to pick the kids up and everything like that. What a waste of a day. So we are here today. So apologies for a day later. To tell you what's coming in the day show, we have Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Main fiction comes from none other than Robert Sheckley. Then we have... Very own Fred Heimbar with his graphic fan. The next up is, and finally, there is a little promo by Amy herself as well. Amy's started this, or is involved with this Mythgard Institute, where you can actually learn science fiction. And courses run online. How cool is that? There's a little promo from Amy as well. So that is show 216. I hope you will enjoy the show. <laughs> So just before we kick in with this week's show, just a little heads up. It's coming up to the new year. Do you know what I mean? All exciting time. Well, I always think it is. So if you've got any ideas, what I'm going to do is probably that show in between Christmas and New Year is run a meta show, give you my thoughts of the kind of last, you know, the last year and tell you what might be coming or what, what plans I've got coming up for the, the new year. If you've got any, you know, if you want to kind of do a fact argument or you've got an idea for the show, now's the time. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Get us an email sent over with your ideas. And we've got some great ideas on the boil, some great things that are coming off in 2012. But if, you know, there might be something else that I don't even know about and you've got a great idea, please drop us a line. So we'll kick off with Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for a look back into genre history. If you'll recall, in my last segment, I began a two-part exploration of the intellectual history behind the idea of 2012 as a turning point, quite possibly a doomsday scenario. In the first half, I talked about the Maya and the idea of galactic alignment 
and the readings of the I Ching that bring that text to bear on the 2012 question. Now, I'd like to begin by talking about other voices from history. As if the ancient Maya and Egyptians and Chinese were not enough, others point to additional voices from history that may have anticipated great change or catastrophe in 2012. In the lead in this effort is the History Channel in the United States, which continues to delve into doomsday scenarios with a zest that borders on the disturbing. But at least it gives the network executives something else to do beyond filming one more special on Hitler, or UFOs, or Hitler and UFOs. The prophecies of the ancient Hopi are encoded in what is today known as the Prophecy Stone, as well as in the recorded works of White Feather of the Bear Clan. In recent years, they have been expounded upon by Hopi elders Thomas Benyakia and Dan Ivahima, as well as author Frank Walters in The Book of the Hopi. According to some Hopi beliefs, the Hopi have the responsibility of keeping the world in balance through their faith and ceremonies. They cannot single-handedly save the earth, however. People of the world have the choice to follow a positive path, or the red road, or a destructive one, the black road. Thomas Spanyakia even addressed the United Nations, offering a final warning to fulfill what he deemed to be his responsibility to these prophecies. Despite this, it seems that materialism and greed have firmly planted modern cultures on the black road. According to some interpretations, eight of the nine Hopi prophecies that foretell the end of days already have been fulfilled. After the ninth occurs, when a blue star, a dwelling place in the heavens, falls from the sky, the Hopi ceremonies will be stopped and the world will lose its balance. Although the prophecies specify no particular dates, some 2012 devotees consider it additional compelling evidence for 2012 as the end of days. Of course, no doomsday scenario would be complete without invoking Nostradamus, the 16th century French apothecary and visionary, or Edgar Cayce, the 20th century sleeping prophet and the psychic from the United States. Neither man specified the year 2012 when recording his visions of the future, but those interested in 2012 have noted similarities in the men's prophecies, similarities that seem to support immediate scientific concerns today. Casey's writings are quite specific. Nostradamus's notoriously mysterious quatrains remain far more open to interpretation. Both, however, seem to refer to catastrophic disasters brought about by a shift in the Earth's magnetic poles, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, floods, and extended drought. According to Casey and some readings of Nostradamus, the very shape and substance of the continents will be forever changed. Moreover, some interpret the illustrations in the so-called Lost Book of Nostradamus to refer to the idea of galactic alignment. The Freemasons also figure into the mix, inspiring websites and online discussion group debates, some 2012 enthusiasts suggest that the Gothic cathedrals built by Freemasons have encoded within their architectural structures mathematical information that foretells the end of the planet. 
Others suggest that the mysterious tracing board art of the first degree of Freemasonry visually depicts an understanding of the galactic alignment that will occur on December 21, 2012. On this, as on most everything else, the Freemasons themselves remain silent. Now let's look toward a more rigorous scientific perspective. The 2012 phenomenon isn't just for conspiracy theorists and the History Channel. It's also for scientists and the Discovery Channel. The unpleasant fact is that geophysicists and geologists have put forward several ways in which 2012 might spell doom for the planet Earth. Now, as you know, I make no pretensions to being a scientist, so I'm just going to give you the very basic whirlwind tour, my understanding of some of these theories put out today. Miura Mandia, a geophysicist at the GFZ German Research Center for Geosciences in Potsdam, Germany, and Niels Olsen, a geophysicist at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, have published research suggesting that the Earth might soon experience a magnetic reversal. The last time the North and South Poles flipped polarity was approximately 780,000 years ago. It seems clear to researchers that the Earth's magnetic field has weakened at least 10% over the last century and a half. If the trend continues, this might signal an upcoming magnetic reversal. It certainly will spell trouble for satellites and electronic equipment, since the magnetic field is what protects them from the dangerous and disruptive radiation from the sun. Added to this peril comes news from the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in the United States that solar activity will continue to climb until it peaks at the, quote, solar maximum around 2013, which arguably is close enough to December 21st, 2012, to cause alarm. This rise in solar activity promises an increase of sunspots and possibly solar flares, both of which disrupt our satellites, radio, and communication systems, among other things. They may even affect the global temperature of the Earth, according to geologist Don Easterbrook of Western Washington University. Geologist and mineralogist Alexei Dmitriev of the Siberian Department of the Russian Academy of Sciences goes further. He says an interstellar energy cloud with charged ions currently is donating extra unstable energy to our galaxy, impacting all of the planets as well as the sun. He explains, and I'm quoting here, effects here on Earth are to be found in the acceleration of the magnetic pole shift, in the vertical and horizontal ozone content distribution, and in the increased frequency and magnitude of significant catastrophic climactic events. There is growing probability that we are moving into a rapid temperature instability period, similar to the one that took place 10,000 years ago. End quote. And what will this mean for the planet? Dmitriev suggests these changes may lead to a, quote, total global revision of the range of species and life on Earth. To the lay reader, that certainly doesn't sound good. Fortunately, the direst of predictions is also the one with the least scientific proof. The idea of the planet Nibiru, a theoretical world in our solar system that follows a highly elliptical path around the sun, making one full orbit roughly every 3,750 years, originated with the ancient astronaut proponent Zakaria Stitchin. 
The planet was adopted by and incorporated into the message of Nancy Leiter, founder of the website Zeta Talk. Leiter claims that she receives messages from extraterrestrials living in the Zeta Reticuli system. Not exactly the kind of source that gets one published in refereed scientific journals. Leiter claims that her alien contacts have warned her that Nibiru will pass close by Earth soon, and its gravitational pull will cause a pole shift that will eradicate most of humanity. Certain adherents to the Nibiru, sometimes called Planet X theory, make predictions even darker than hers, asserting that Nibiru will in fact collide with Earth and destroy all life completely. They also fine-tune the timetable for this disaster, so that it coincides with the more popular date of December 21st, 2012. Okay, as you can tell, we're drifting from scientific to not-so-scientific perspective, so let's just go the whole hog here and talk about pseudoscientific and uh, fringe scientific and just really non-scientific stuff altogether. Hey folks, I don't have to agree with it, I'm just reporting it. It should come as no surprise that the subject of 2012, with its relationship to various world religions and mythologies, as well as environmental and space sciences, has attracted members of the New Age movement. One of the first leaders to tackle the issue was spiritualist and metaphysician José Arguelles, who was one of the organizers of the Whole Earth Festival in 1970 and the Harmonic Convergence event in 1987. He has predicted that runaway technology, materialism, aggression, and environmental abuse, coupled with the fast pace of daily life, may lead to the destruction of the United States by 2012. He considers that year to be a cosmic juncture, a collision of different realities, and a collision of different dimensions. In books such as The Mayan Path Beyond Technology and Time, and the technosphere, the law of time and human affairs, Arguelles explains his vision for creating, through art and peaceful cooperation, a positive expansion in human understanding and a shift toward galactic consciousness. Although his judgments against contemporary society are harsh, Arguelles believes we can prepare ourselves to become better through a transformative community experience of 2012. A related figure in the New Age movement is Daniel Pinchbeck, author, vocal advocate of the use of psychedelic substances, and founder of the online magazine Reality Sandwich, which, according to its tag, is devoted to evolving consciousness bite by bite. In his book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, Pinchbeck covers topics as diverse as ESP and crop circles. His guiding message is that, as we approach 2012, humanity will experience an accelerated process of consciousness expansion that will allow us to cast aside materialistic attitudes and, quite literally, think globally. This is not a new path for humanity, he explains, but rather the return of an ancient one. Pinchbeck's insights are guided by his belief in shamanistic and mystical ways of knowing, and his conviction that he receives messages directly from the Mesoamerican god Quetzalcoatl. Like Arguelles, Pinchbeck views 2012 with hope. The list of those who have embraced a contemporary New Age form of Mayanism could go on and on. Works of a similar optimistic tone include 
World Shift 2012, Making Green Business, New Politics, and Higher Consciousness Work Together by Irvin Laszlo, with introductions by Odd Bedfellows Deepak Chopra and Mikhail Gorbachev. Beyond 2012, A Shaman's Call to Personal Change and the Transformation of Global Consciousness by James Andretti, and The Gaia Project 2012, The Earth's Coming Great Changes by Hui Yong Zhang, among others. They prove, if nothing else, that there can be more to 2012 than doom and gloom. Now let's talk about the fictional 2012. With this rich fodder for creative minds, it's no wonder that filmmakers and authors are turning to the subject of 2012. A thorough survey of fictional interpretations of 2012 would require a separate podcast, but a few examples are in order. Roland Emmerich's big-budget film 2012 is eco-disaster porn at its most digitally enhanced, complete with volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and tsunamis. 2012 Doomsday depicts the Earth facing a catastrophic polar shift, while in 2012 Supernova, a nearby star goes supernova and threatens the planet. I Spit on Your Rave links 2012 to a zombie apocalypse. Blood of the Beast imagines world war, chemical weapons, and clones for 2012. And Razifan imagines an alien invasion. Novelists likewise have found 2012 inspiring. Eric and Todd Gregory link 2012 with a disastrous turn in the war on terror in America 2012, a novel. Stel Pavlou's Decipher has it all, the sunspots, the sphinx, the rising of Atlantis, and the threat of eco-apocalypse. In 2012, The War of Souls, Whitley Stryber tells of an invasion by aliens who wish to eat human souls. Julianne Farnsworth links the Bermuda Triangle, the Devil's Triangle, and the Lost Continent of Atlantis to 2012 in Time Storm 2012, Atlantis and the Mayan Prophecy. Gregory Bernard Banks focuses on the panic that ensues when world leaders admit their helplessness to stop doomsday in 2012 Seeking Closure. John P. Cater's The End Light event posits a catastrophic eclipse of the sun in 2012 that may spell extinction for life on Earth. You get the idea. Genre fiction is rife with references to 2012. And 2012 has influenced some of the most celebrated fictional texts of recent years. Fans of The X-Files will not forget that in the two-part series finale, The Truth, the cigarette-smoking man hid out in the New Mexico desert to avoid the alien colonization scheduled for, yes, December 22, 2012. The fact that Apex Magazine devoted an entire issue recently to short fiction based on the 2012 premise proves that 2012 continues to inform science fiction and horror. So, the question remains, will 2012 yield terrors unimaginable, a transformed and better world, or simply an anticlimax after so much anticipation and fear. My humble introduction to the different ingredients that inform the 2012 phenomenon reflects barely the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Enthusiasts tie 2012 to everything from reported crop circles to alleged alien abductions, from Stonehenge to the Bermuda Triangle. Scientists investigate concerns about photon belts, black holes, and asteroids, and note the fact that the Pleiades will conjunct with an eclipse of the moon by the sun twice in 2012. Millennialists from some of the world's major religions seek for 
and are finding reasons to take 2012 seriously in their studies of Kabbalah, the Bible, and the Quran. However, you look at it; it is a cultural phenomenon. Now, you may laugh, you may pray, or meditate, or seek to expand your consciousness in preparation for inheriting a transformed and uplifted world. Or you might pick up a copy of Patrick Garrell's *How to Survive 2012* or Janice Manning's *Planet X Forecast* and *2012 Survival Guide* just to be on the safe side. Whatever you choose to do, just keep this in mind. You don't have long to do it. I hope you've enjoyed this little romp through the different facets and voices of the 2012 phenomenon. Next time we will be looking back instead of ahead. As we take a look into genre history, thank you. Do listen out for the promo by Amy at the end of the show. Next up is Main Fiction, and it's by none other than Robert Sheckley. A fount of knowledge, Wikipedia says Robert Sheckley was born July the sixteenth, nineteen twenty-eight, and died December. The ninth, two thousand five, Hugo and Nebula nominated American author. It's first published in science fiction magazines of the nineteen fifties, and it is. If you've kind of listened to kind of some of Sheckley's work, it is this kind of you know quick-witted stories, bang, bang, bang. Do you know what I mean? We actually did myself and Kieran did a show on Robert she- Bob Sheckley. You know, <laughs> as if we knew him. So I was going to say go back and kind of have a listen to that, but they're not online at the moment. It was Alan Dean Foster that's actually said、uh, Robert Sheckley is the best short story writer in the field, or the field has produced. Douglas Adams says I had no idea the competition was so terrifyingly good. Brian Aldous says Sheckley at his best is Voltaire and Sora. There's actually a number of Robert Sheckley's works on Gutenberg, and this is where I got this one from. There, so I, I think there's probably about ten or twelve stories by. Shakespeare, so that's great. You know, what I mean, they're up there for all to, to kind of enjoy, and hopefully, we'll get around to playing some more as well. This story is narrated by Jeff Lane. Jeff did a couple of narrations for Starship Sova, and he's got some books out as well. His first book, This Paper World, is also available as a podcast and ebook. He lives in New Hampshire with his wife and two little girls. Spent most of his childhood, he says, secretly hoping that each time he used one of those blue porter potties. <laughs> You know the ones you see on construction sites and concerts. He says, "I'm just. I haven't read. I haven't read Jeff's bio until I've just kind of start reading it there now." And he says, "Those porta potties." He says he always wondered when he was a child if you'd open the door and find it was bigger on the inside. He says he hopes this is. The, he's not the only person that did this, Jeff. I honestly, seriously think you are. He says he's currently podcasting his novel One Way, which is available at jefflaneaudiobooks.com. So please go over there and in iTunes as well. Jeff, you are a star. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Watchbird by Robert Sheckley. When Gelson entered, he saw that the rest of the Watchbird manufacturers were already present. There were six of them, not counting himself. And the room was blue with expensive cigar smoke. Hi, Charlie," one of them called as he came in. The rest broke off conversation long enough to wave a casual greeting at him. As a watchbird manufacturer, he was a member manufacturer of Salvation. 
he reminded himself wryly. Very exclusive. You had to have a certified government contract if you wanted to save the human race. The government representative isn't here yet, one of the men told him. He's due any minute. We're getting the green light, another said. Fine. Gelson found a chair near the door and looked around the room. It was like a convention or a Boy Scout rally. The six men made up for their lack of numbers by sheer volume. The president of Southern Consolidated was talking at the top of his lungs about Watchbird's enormous durability. The two presidents he was talking at were grinning, nodding, and one trying to interrupt with the results of a test he had run on Watchbird's resourcefulness, the other talking about the new recharging apparatus. The other three men were in their own little group, delivering what sounded like a panegyric to Watchbird. Gelson noticed that all of them stood straight and tall like the saviors they felt they were. He didn't find it funny. Up to a few days ago, he had felt that way himself. He had considered himself a pot-bellied, slightly balding saint. He sighed and lighted a cigarette. At the beginning of the project, he had been as enthusiastic as the others. He remembered saying to McIntyre, his chief engineer, Mac, a new day is coming. Watchbird is the answer. And McIntyre had nodded very profoundly. Another Watchbird convert. How wonderful it had seemed then. A simple, reliable answer to one of mankind's greatest problems, all wrapped and packaged in a pound of incorruptible metal, crystals, and plastics. Perhaps that was the very reason he was doubting it now. Gelson suspected that you don't solve human problems so easily. There had to be a catch somewhere. After all, murder was an old problem, and Watchbird too knew a solution. <clears throat> Gentlemen! They had been talking so heatedly that they hadn't noticed the government representative entering. Now the room became quiet at once. Gentlemen, the plump government man said, the president, with the consent of Congress, has acted to form a watchbird division for every city and town in the country. The men burst into a spontaneous shout of triumph. They were going to have their chance to save the world after all, Gelson thought, and worriedly asked himself, what was wrong with that? He listened carefully as the government man outlined the distribution scheme. The country was to be divided into seven areas, each to be supplied in service by one manufacturer. This meant monopoly, of course, but a necessary one. Like the telephone service, it was in the public's best interest. You couldn't have competition in Watchbird service. Watchbird was for everyone. The president hopes, the representative continued, that full watchbird service will be installed in the shortest possible time. You will have top priorities on strategic metals, manpower, and so forth. Speaking for myself, the president of Southern Consolidated said, I expect to have the first batch of watchbirds distributed within the week. Production is all set up. The rest of the men were equally ready. The factories had been prepared to roll out the watchbirds for months now. The final standardized equipment had been agreed upon, and only the presidential go-ahead had been lacking. Fine, the representative said. If that is all, I think we can... Is there a question? Yes, sir, Gelson said. I want to know if the present model is the one we're going to manufacture. Of course, the representative said. It's the most advanced. I have an objection. 
Gelson stood up. His colleagues were glaring coldly at him. Obviously, he was delaying the advent of the Golden Age. "'What is your objection?' the representative asked. First, let me say that I am 100% in favor of a machine to stop murder. It's been needed for a long time. I object only to the watchbird's learning circuits. They serve, in effect, to animate the machine and give it a pseudo-consciousness. I can't approve of that. But, Mr. Gelson, you yourself testified that the watchbird would not be completely efficient unless such circuits were introduced. Without them, the watchbirds could stop only an estimated 70% of murders. I know that, Gelson said, feeling extremely uncomfortable. I believe there might be a moral danger in allowing a machine to make decisions that are rightfully man's, he declared doggedly. Oh, come now, Gelson, one of the corporation presidents said. It's nothing of the sort. The watchbird will only reinforce the decisions made by honest men from the beginning of time. I think that is true, the representative agreed. But I can understand how Mr. Gelson feels. It is sad we must put a human problem into the hands of a machine. Sadder still that we must have a machine enforce our laws. But I ask you to remember, Mr. Gelson, that there is no other possible way of stopping a murderer before he strikes. It would be unfair to the many innocent people killed every year if we were to restrict Watchbird on philosophical grounds. Don't you agree that I'm right? Yes, I suppose I do, Gelson said unhappily. He had told himself all that a thousand times, but something still bothered him. Perhaps he would talk it over with McIntyre. As the conference broke up, a thought struck him. He grinned. A lot of policemen were going to be out of work. Now what do you think of that? Officer Keltrix demanded. Fifteen years in homicide and a machine is replacing me. He wiped a large red hand across his forehead and leaned against the captain's desk. Ain't science marvelous? Two other policemen, late of homicide, nodded glumly. Don't worry about it, the captain said. We'll find a home for you in Larceny, Keltrix. You'll like it there. I just can't get over it, Keltrix complained. A lousy piece of tin and glass is going to solve all the crimes? Not quite, the captain said. The watchbirds are supposed to prevent the crimes before they happen. Then how will they be crimes? One of the policemen asked. I mean, they can't hang you for murder until you commit one, can they? That's not the idea, the captain said. The watchbirds are supposed to stop a man before he commits a murder. Then no one arrests him? Keltrix asked. I don't know how they're going to work that out, the captain admitted. The men were silent for a while. The captain yawned and examined his watch. The thing I don't understand, Keltrix said, still leaning on the captain's desk, is just how they do it. How did it start, captain? The captain studied Keltrick's face for possible irony. After all, Watchbird had been in the papers for months. But then he remembered that Keltrick's, like his sidekicks, rarely bothered to turn past the sports pages. Well, the captain said, trying to remember what he had read in the Sunday supplements. These scientists were working on criminology. They were studying murderers to find out what made them tick. So they found that 
murderers throw out a different sort of brainwave from ordinary people. And their glands act funny, too. All this happens when they're about to commit a murder. So these scientists worked out a special machine to flash red or something when these brainwaves turned on. <laughs> scientists, Keltrick said bitterly. Well, after the scientists had this machine, they didn't know what to do with it. It was too big to move around, and murderers didn't drop in often enough to make it flash, so they built it into a smaller unit and tried it out in a few police stations. I think they tried one upstate, but it didn't work so good. You couldn't get to the crime in time. That's why they built the watchbirds. I don't think they'll stop no criminals, one of the policemen insisted. They sure will. I read the test results. They can smell him out before he commits a crime. And when they reach him, they give him a powerful shock or something. It'll stop him. You closing up homicide, Captain? Keltrix asked. Nope, the captain said. I'm leaving a skeleton crew in until we see how these birds do. Ha, Keltrix said. Skeleton crew. That's funny. Sure, the captain said. Anyhow, I'm going to leave some men on. It seems the birds don't stop all murders. Why not? Some murderers don't have these brainwaves, the captain answered, trying to remember what the newspaper article had said. Or their glands don't work. Or something. Which ones don't they stop? Keltrix asked, with professional curiosity. I don't know, but I hear they got the damn things fixed, so they're going to stop all of them soon. How they work in that? They learn. The watchbirds, I mean. Just like people. You kidding me? Nope. Well, Keltrick said, I think I'll just keep old Betsy oiled just in case. You can't trust these scientists. Right. But, Keltrick scoffed. Over the town, the watchbird soared in a long, lazy curve. Its aluminum hide glistened in the morning sun and dots of light danced off its stiff wings. Silently, it flew. Silently, but with all senses functioning, built-in kinesthetics told the watchbird where it was and held it in a long search curve. Its eyes and ears operated as one unit, searching, seeking. And then something happened. The watchbird's electronically fast reflexes picked up the edge of a sensation. A correlation center tested it, matching it with electrical and chemical data in its memory files. A relay tripped. Down, the watchbird spiraled, coming in on the increasingly strong sensation. It smelled the outpouring of certain glands, tasted a deviant brainwave. Fully alert and armed, it spun and banked into bright morning sunlight. Danelli was so intent, he didn't see the watchbird coming. He had his gun poised, and his eyes pleaded with the big grocer. Don't come no closer. You lousy little punk the grocer said and took another step forward. Rob me? I'll break every bone in your puny body. The grocer, too stupid or too courageous to understand the threat of the gun, advanced on the little thief. All right, Danelli said in a thorough state of panic. All right, sucker, take... A bolt of electricity knocked him on his back. The gun went off, smashing a breakfast food display. What in hell? The grocer asked, staring at the stunned thief and then he saw a flash of silver wings. Well, I'm really damned. Those watchbirds work. He stared until the wings disappeared in the sky. Then he telephoned the police. 
the watchbird returned to his search curve. His thinking center correlated the new facts he had learned about murder. Several of these he hadn't known before. This new information was simultaneously flashed to all other watchbirds, and their information was flashed back to him. New informations, methods, definitions were constantly passing between them. Now that the watchbirds were rolling off the assembly line in a steady stream, Gelson allowed himself to relax. A loud, contented hum filled his plant. Orders were being filled on time with top priorities given to the biggest cities in his area and working down to the smallest towns. All smooth, Chief, McIntyre said, coming in the door. He had just completed a routine inspection. Fine. Have a seat. The big engineer sat down and lighted a cigarette. We've been working on this for some time, Gelson said when he couldn't think of anything else. We sure have, McIntyre agreed. He leaned back and inhaled deeply. He had been one of the consulting engineers on the original Watchbird. That was six years back. He had been working for Gelson ever since, and the men had become good friends. The thing I wanted to ask you was this, Gelson paused. He couldn't think of how to phrase what he wanted. Instead, he asked, What do you think of the watchbirds, Mac? Who? Me? The engineer grinned nervously. He had been eating, drinking, and sleeping watchbird ever since its inception. He had never found it necessary to have an attitude. Why, I think it's great. I don't mean that, Gelson said. He realized that what he wanted was to have someone understand his point of view. I mean, do you figure that there might be some danger in machine thinking? I don't think so, Chief. Why do you ask? Look, I'm no scientist or engineer. I've just handled cost and production and let you boys worry about how. But as a layman, Watchbird is starting to frighten me. No reason for that. I don't like the idea of learning circuits. But why not? Then McIntyre grinned again. I know. You're like a lot of people, Chief. Afraid your machines are going to wake up and say, What are we doing here? Let's go out and rule the world. Is that it? Maybe something like that, Gelson admitted. No chance of it, McIntyre said. The watchbirds are complex. I'll admit. But an MIT calculator is a whole lot more complex, and it hasn't got consciousness. No. But the watchbirds can learn. Sure, so can all the new calculators. Do you think they'll team up with the watchbirds? Gelson felt annoyed at McIntyre, and even more annoyed at himself for being ridiculous. It's a fact that the watchbirds can put their learning into action. No one is monitoring them. So that's the trouble, McIntyre said. I've been thinking of getting out of Watchbird. Gelson hadn't realized it until that moment. Look, Chief, McIntyre said, will you take an engineer's word on this? Let's hear it. The watchbirds are no more dangerous than an automobile, an IBM calculator, or a thermometer. They have no more consciousness or volition than those things. The watchbirds are built to respond to certain stimuli and to carry out certain operations when they receive that stimuli. And the learning circuits? You have to have those, McIntyre said patiently as though explaining the whole thing to a ten-year-old. 
The purpose of the watchbird is to frustrate all murder attempts, right? Well, only certain murderers give out these stimuli. In order to stop all of them, the watchbird has to search out new definitions of murder and correlate them with what it already knows. I think it's inhuman, Gelson said. That's the best thing about it. The watchbirds are unemotional. Their reasoning is non-anthropomorphic. You can't bribe them or drug them. You shouldn't fear them either. The intercom on Gelson's desk buzzed. He ignored it. I know all this, Gelson said. But still, sometimes I feel like the man who's invented dynamite. He thought it would only be used for blowing up tree stumps. You didn't invent Watchbird. I still feel morally responsible because I manufacture them. The intercom buzzed again, and Gelson irritably punched a button. The reports are in on the first week of Watchbird operation, his secretary told him. How do they look? Wonderful, sir. Send them in in 15 minutes. Gelson switched the intercom off and turned back to McIntyre, who was cleaning his fingernails with a wooden match. Don't you think that this represents a trend in human thinking? The mechanical god, the electronic father? Chief, McIntyre said. I think you should study Watchbird more closely. Do you know what's built into the circuits? Only generally. First, there is a purpose, which is to stop living organisms from committing murder. Two, murder may be defined as an act of violence consisting of breaking, mangling, maltreating, or otherwise stopping the functions of living organisms by a living organism. Three, most murderers are detectable by certain chemical and electrical changes. McIntyre paused to light another cigarette. Those conditions take care of the routine functions. Then, for the learning circuits, there are two more conditions. Four, there are some living organisms who commit murder without the signs mentioned in three. Five, these can be detected by data applicable to condition two. I see. Gelson said. You realize how foolproof it is? I suppose so. Gelson hesitated a moment. I guess that's all. Right, the engineer said, and left. Gelson thought for a few moments. There couldn't be anything wrong with the watchbirds. Send in the reports, he said into the intercom. High above the lighted buildings of the city, the watchbirds soared. It was dark, but in the distance the watchbird could see another, and another beyond that, for this was a large city. To prevent murder. There was more to watch for now. New information had crossed the invisible network that connected all watchbirds. New data, new ways of detecting the violence of murder. There. The edge of a sensation. Two watchbirds dipped simultaneously. One had received the scent a fraction of a second before the other. He continued down while the other resumed monitoring. Condition 4. There are some living organisms who commit murder without the signs mentioned in Condition 3. Through this new information, the watchbird knew by extrapolation that this organism was bent on murder, even though the characteristic chemical and electrical smells were absent. The watchbird, all senses acute, closed in on the organism. He found what he wanted and dived. Roger Grieco, 
leaned against a building, his hands in his pockets. In his left hand was the cool butt of a forty-five. Greco waited patiently. He wasn't thinking of anything in particular, just relaxing against a building, waiting for a man. Greco didn't know why the man was to be killed. He didn't care. Greco's lack of curiosity was part of his value. The other part was his skill. One bullet, neatly placed in the head of a man he didn't know. It didn't excite him or sicken him. It was a job, just like anything else. You killed a man. So? As Greco's victim stepped out of a building, Greco lifted the forty-five out of his pocket. He released the safety and braced the gun with his right hand. He still wasn't thinking of anything as he took aim, and was knocked off his feet. Greco thought he'd been shot. He struggled up again, looked around, and sighted foggily on his victim. Again he was knocked down. This time he lay on the ground, trying to draw a bead. He never thought of stopping, for Greco was a craftsman. With the next blow, everything went black. Permanently, because the watchbird's duty was to protect the object of violence at whatever cost to the murderer. The victim walked to his car. He had noticed anything unusual. Everything had happened in silence. Gelson was feeling pretty good. The watchbirds had been operating perfectly. Crimes of violence had been cut in half and cut again. Dark alleys were no longer mouths of horror. Parks and playgrounds were not places to shun after dusk. Of course, there were still robberies. Petty thievery flourished, and embezzlement, larceny, forgery, and a hundred other crimes. But that wasn't so important. You could regain lost money, never a lost life. Gelson was ready to admit that he'd been wrong about the watchbirds. They were doing a job that humans had been unable to accomplish. The first hint of something wrong came that morning. McIntyre came into his office. He stood silently in front of Gelson's desk, looking annoyed and a little embarrassed. "'What's the matter, Mac?' Gelson asked. "'One of the watchbirds went to work on a slaughterhouse man. Knocked him out.' Gelson thought about it for a moment. "'Yes, the watchbirds would do that. With their new learning circuits, they probably define the killing of animals as murder.' Tell the Packers to mechanize their slaughtering, Gelson said. I never liked that business myself. All right, McIntyre said. He pursed his lips, then shrugged his shoulders and left. Gelson stood beside his desk, thinking. Couldn't the watchbirds differentiate between a murderer and a man engaged in a legitimate profession? No, evidently not. To them, murder was murder, no exceptions. He frowned. That might take a little ironing out in the circuits. But not too much, he decided hastily. Just make them a little more discriminating. He sat down again and buried himself in paperwork, trying to avoid the edge of an old fear. They strapped the prisoner into the chair and fitted the electrode to his leg. Uh, uh, he moaned, only half conscious now of what they were doing. They fitted the helmet over his shaved head and tightened the last straps. He continued to moan softly. And then the watchbird swept in. How he had come, no one knew. Prisons are large and strong with many locked doors. But the watchbird was there to stop a murder. Get that thing out of here, the warden shouted and reached for the switch. The watchbird knocked him down. 
Stop that! A guard screamed and grabbed for the switch himself. He was knocked to the floor beside the warden. This isn't murder, you idiot! Another guard said. He drew his gun to shoot down the glittering, wheeling metal bird. Anticipating, the watchbird smashed him back against the wall. There was silence in the room. After a while, the man in the helmet started to giggle. Then he stopped. The watchbird stood on guard, fluttering in midair, making sure that no murder was done. New data flashed along the watchbird network. Unmonitored, independent, the thousands of watchbirds received and acted upon it. The breaking, mangling, or otherwise stopping the functions of a living organism by a living organism. New acts to stop. Damn you! Get going! Farmer Ollister shouted and raised his whip again. The horse balked and the wagon rattled and shook as he edged sideways. You lousy hunk of pig meal, get going! The farmer yelled and he raised the whip again. It never fell. An alert watchbird, sensing violence, had knocked him out of his seat. A living organism? What is a living organism? The watchbirds extended their definitions as they became aware of more facts, and of course, this gave them more work. The deer was just visible at the edge of the woods. The hunter raised his rifle and took careful aim. He didn't have time to shoot. With his free hand, Gelson mopped perspiration from his face. All right, he said into the telephone. He listened to the stream of vituperation from the other end, then placed the receiver gently in its cradle. What was that one? McIntyre asked. He was unshaven, tie loose, shirt unbuttoned. Another fisherman, Gelson said. It seems the watchbirds won't let him fish, even though his family is starving. What are we going to do about it, he wants to know. How many hundred is that? I don't know. I haven't opened the mail. Well, I figured out what the trouble is, McIntyre said gloomily with the air of a man who knows just how he blew up the earth after it was too late. Let's hear it. Everybody took it for granted that we wanted all murder stopped. We figured the watchbirds would think as we do. We ought to have qualified the conditions. I've got an idea, Gelson said, that we'd have to know just why and what murder is before we could qualify the conditions properly. And if we knew that, we wouldn't need the watchbirds. Oh, I don't know about that. They just have to be told that some things which look like murder are not murder. But why should they stop fishermen? Gelson asked. Why shouldn't they? Fish and animals are living organisms. We just don't think that killing them is murder. The telephone rang. Gelson glared at it and punched the intercom. I told you no more calls no matter what. This is from Washington, his secretary said. I thought you'd... Sorry. Gelson picked up the phone. Yes. Certainly is a mess. Have they? All right. I certainly will. He put down the telephone. Short and sweet, he told McIntyre. We're to shut down temporarily. That won't be so easy, McIntyre said. The watchbirds operate independent of any central control, you know. They come back once a week for repair checkup. We'll have to turn them off then, one by one. Well, let's get to it. Monroe over on the coast has shut down about a quarter of his birds. 
I think I can dope out a restricting circuit, McIntyre said. Fine, Gelson replied bitterly. You make me very happy. The watchbirds were learning rapidly, expanding and adding to their knowledge. Loosely defined abstractions were extended, acted upon, and re-extended. To stop murder. Metal and electrons reason well, but not in a human fashion. A living organism? Any living organism. The watchbirds set themselves the task of protecting all living things. The fly buzzed around the room, lighting on the tabletop, pausing a moment, then darting to a windowsill. The old man stalked it, a rolled newspaper in his hand. Murderer. The watchbird swept down and saved the fly in the nick of time. The old man writhed on the floor a minute, and then was silent. He had been given only a mild shock, but it had been enough for his fluttery, cranky heart. His victim had been saved, though, and this was the important thing. Save the victim and give the aggressor his just desserts. Gelson demanded angrily, Why aren't they being turned off? The assistant control engineer gestured. In a corner of the repair room lay the senior control engineer. He was just regaining consciousness. He tried to turn one of them off, the assistant engineer said. Both his hands were knotted together. He was making a visible effort not to shake. That's ridiculous. They haven't got any sense of self-preservation. Then turn them off yourself. Besides, I don't think any more are going to come. What could have happened? Gelson began to piece it together. The watchbirds still hadn't decided on the limits of a living organism. When some of them were turned off in the Monroe plant, the rest must have correlated the data so they had been forced to assume that they were living organisms as well. No one had ever told them otherwise. Certainly they carried on most of the functions of living organisms. Then the old fears hit him. Gelson trembled and hurried out of the repair room. He wanted to find McIntyre in a hurry. The nurse handed the surgeon the sponge. Scalpel. She placed it in his hand. He started to make the first incision, and then he was aware of a disturbance. Who let that thing in? I don't know, the nurse said, her voice muffled by the mask. Get it out of here. The nurse waved her arms at the bright winged thing, but it fluttered over her head. The surgeon proceeded with the incision as long as he was able. The watchbird drove him away and stood guard. Telephone the watchbird company, the surgeon ordered. Get them to turn the thing off. The watchbird was preventing violence to a living organism. The surgeon stood by helplessly while his patient died. Fluttering high above the network of highways, the watchbird watched and waited. It had been constantly working for weeks now without rest or repair. Rest and repair were impossible because the watchbird couldn't allow itself a living organism to be murdered. And that was what was happening when watchbirds returned to the factory. There was a built-in order to return after the lapse of a certain time period, but the watchbird had a stronger order to obey, preservation of life, including its own. The definitions of murder were almost infinitely extended now, impossible to cope with, but the watchbird didn't consider that. It responded to its stimuli, whenever they came, whatever their source. 
there was a new definition of living organism in its memory files. It had come as a result of the watchbird discovery that watchbirds were living organisms, and it had enormous ramifications. The stimuli came. For the hundredth time that day, the bird wheeled and banked, dropping swiftly down to stop murder. Jackson yawned and pulled his car to a shoulder of the road. He didn't notice the glittering dot in the sky. There was no reason for him to. Jackson wasn't contemplating murder by any human definition. This was a good spot for a nap, he decided. He had been driving for seven straight hours and his eyes were starting to fog. He reached to turn off the ignition key and was knocked back against the side of the car. What in the hell's wrong with you? he asked indignantly. All I want to do is... He reached for the key again, and again he was smacked back. Jackson knew better than to try a third time. He had been listening to the radio, and he knew what the watchbirds did to stubborn violators. You mechanical jerk, he said to the waiting metal bird. A car is not alive. I'm not trying to kill it. But the watchbird only knew that a certain operation resulted in stopping an organism. The car was certainly a functioning organism. Wasn't it of metal? as were the watchbirds. Didn't it run? McIntyre said, Without repairs, they'll run down. He shoved a pile of specification sheets out of his way. How soon? Gelson asked. Six months to a year. Say a year, barring accidents. A year, Gelson said. In the meantime, everything is stopping dead. Do you know the latest? What? The watchbirds have decided that the earth is a living organism. They won't allow farmers to break ground for plowing, and of course, everything else is a living organism. Rabbits, beetles, flies, wolves, mosquitoes, lions, crocodiles, crows, and smaller forms of life such as bacteria. I know, McIntyre said. And you tell me they'll wear out in six months or a year? What happens now? What are we going to eat in six months? The engineer rubbed his chin. We'll have to do something, quick and fast. Ecological balance is gone to hell. Fast isn't the word. Instantaneously would be better. Gelson lighted his 35th cigarette for the day. At least I have the bitter satisfaction of saying, I told you so. Although I'm just as responsible as the rest of the machine-worshipping fools. McIntyre wasn't listening. He wasn't thinking about watchbirds. Like the rabbit plague in Australia. The death rate is mounting, Gelson said. Famine, floods, can't cut down trees, doctors can't... What was that you said about Australia? The rabbits, McIntyre repeated. Hardly any left in Australia now. Why? How was it done? Oh, found some kind of germ that attacked only rabbits. I think it was propagated by mosquitoes. Work on that, Gelson said. You might have something. I want you to get on the telephone. Ask for an emergency hookup with the engineers of the other companies. Hurry it up. Together, you may be able to dope out something. Right, McIntyre said. He grabbed a handful of blank paper and hurried to the telephone. What did I tell you? Officer Keltrick said. He grinned at the captain. Didn't I tell you scientists were nuts? I didn't say you were wrong, did I? The captain asked. No, but you weren't sure. Well, I'm sure now. You better get going. 
There's plenty of work for you. I know. Keltrix drew his revolver from its holster, checked it, and put it back. Are all the boys back, Captain? All? <laughs> the captain laughed humorlessly. Homicide has increased by 50%. There's more murder now than there's ever been. Sure, Keltrix said. The watchbirds are too busy guarding cars and slugging spiders. He started walking to the door, then turned for a parting shot. Take my word, Captain. Machines are stupid. The captain nodded. Thousands of watchbirds trying to stop countless millions of murders. A hopeless task. But the watchbirds didn't hope. Without consciousness, they experienced no sense of accomplishment, no fear of failure. Patiently, they went about their jobs, obeying each stimulus as it came. They couldn't be everywhere at the same time, but it wasn't necessary to be. People learned quickly what the watchbirds didn't like and refrained from doing it. It just wasn't safe. With their high speed and super-fast senses, the watchbirds got around quickly. And now they meant business. In their original directives, there had been a provision made for killing a murderer if all other means failed. Why spare a murderer? It backfired. The watchbirds extracted the fact that murder and crimes of violence had increased geometrically since they had begun operation. This was true because their new definitions increased the possibilities of murder. But to the watchbirds, the rise showed that the first methods had failed. Simple logic. If A doesn't work, try B. The watchbirds shocked to kill. Slaughterhouses in Chicago stopped and cattle starved to death in their pens because farmers in the Midwest couldn't cut hay or harvest grain. No one had told the watchbirds that all life depends on carefully balanced murders. Starvation didn't concern watchbirds, since it was an act of omission. Their interest lay only in acts of commission. Hunters sat home, glaring at the silver dots in the sky, longing to shoot them down. But for the most part, they didn't try. The watchbirds were quick to sense the murder intent and to punish it. Fishing boats swung idle at their moorings in San Pedro and Gloucester. Fish were living organisms. Farmers cursed and spat and died trying to harvest the crop. Grain was alive and thus worthy of protection. Potatoes were as important to the watchbird as any other living organism. The death of a blade of grass was equal to the assassination of a president to the watchbirds. And of course, certain machines were living. This followed, since the watchbirds were machines and living. God help you if you maltreated your radio. Turning it off meant killing it. Obviously, its voice was silenced. The red glow of its tubes faded. It grew cold. The watchbirds tried to guard their other charges. Wolves were slaughtered, trying to kill rabbits. Rabbits were electrocuted, trying to eat vegetables. Creepers were burned out in the act of strangling trees. A butterfly was executed, caught in the act of outraging a rose. This control was spasmatic because of the fewness of the watchbirds. A billion watchbirds couldn't have carried out the ambitious project set by the thousands. The effect was of a murderous force. Ten thousand bolts of irrational lightning raging around the country, striking a thousand times a day. Lightning which anticipated your moves and punished your intentions. Gentlemen, please! 
the government representative begged. We must hurry. The seven manufacturers stopped talking. Before we begin this meeting formally, the president of Monroe said, I want to say something. We do not feel ourselves responsible for this unhappy state of affairs. It was a government project. The government must accept the responsibility, both moral and financial. Gelson shrugged his shoulders. It was hard to believe that these men, just a few weeks ago, had been willing to accept the glory of saving the world. Now they wanted to shrug off the responsibility when salvation was amiss. I'm positive that that need not concern us now, the representative assured him. We must hurry. You engineers have done an excellent job. I am proud of the cooperation you've shown in this emergency. You are hereby empowered to put the outline plan into action. Wait a minute, Gelson said. There is no time. The plan's no good. Don't you think it will work? <sighs> of course it will work, but I'm afraid the cure will be worse than the disease. The manufacturers looked as though they would have enjoyed throttling Gelson. He didn't hesitate. Haven't we learned yet? He asked. Don't you see that you can't cure human problems by mechanization? Mr. Gelson, the president of Monroe said, I would enjoy hearing you philosophize, but unfortunately people are being killed. Crops are being ruined. There is famine in some sections of the country already. The watchbirds must be stopped at once. Murder must be stopped too. I remember all of us agreeing upon that. But this is not the way. What would you suggest? The representative asked. Gelson took a deep breath. What he was about to say took all the courage he had. <sighs> Let the watchbirds run down by themselves, Gelson suggested. There was a near riot. The government representative broke it up. Let's take our lesson, Gelson urged. Admit that we were wrong trying to cure human problems by mechanical means. Start again. Use machines, yes, but not as judges and teachers and fathers. Ridiculous, the representative said coldly. Mr. Gelson, you are overwrought. I suggest you control yourself. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> All of you are ordered by the president to carry out the plan you have submitted. He looked sharply at Gelson. Not to do so will be treason. I'll cooperate to the best of my ability, Gelson said. Good. Those assembly lines must be rolling within the week. Gelson walked out of the room alone. Now he was confused again. Had he been right, or was he just another visionary? Certainly he hadn't explained himself with much clarity. Did he know what he meant? Gelson cursed under his breath. He wondered why he couldn't ever be sure of anything. Weren't there any values he could hold on to? He hurried to the airport and to his plant. The watchbird was operating erratically now. Many of its delicate parts were out of line, worn by almost continuous operation. But gallantly, it responded when the stimuli came. A spider was attacking a fly. The watchbird swooped down to the rescue. Simultaneously, it became aware of something overhead. The watchbird wheeled to meet it. There was a sharp crackle, and a power bolt whizzed by the watchbird's wing. Angrily, it spat a shockwave. 
The attacker was heavily insulated. Again it spat at the watchbird. This time the bolt smashed through the wing. The watchbird darted away, but the attacker went after it in a burst of speed, throwing out more crackling power. The watchbird fell, but managed to send out its message. Urgent. A new menace to living organisms, and this was the deadliest yet. Other watchbirds around the country integrated the message. The thinking centers searched for the answer. Well, Chief, they bagged 50 today, McIntyre said, coming into Gelson's office. Fine, Gelson said, not looking at the engineer. Not so fine, McIntyre sat down. Lord, I am tired. It was 72 yesterday. I know. On Gelson's desk were several dozen lawsuits which he was sending to the government with a prayer. They'll pick up again, though, McIntyre said confidently. The Hawks are especially built to hunt down watchbirds. They're stronger, faster, and they've got better armor. We really rolled them out in a hurry, huh? We sure did. The watchbirds are pretty good, too, McIntyre had to admit. They're learning to take cover. They're trying a lot of stunts. You know, each one that goes down tells the other something. Gelson didn't answer. But anything the watchbirds can do, the Hawks can do better, McIntyre said cheerfully. The Hawks have special learning circuits for hunting. They're more flexible than the watchbirds. They learn faster. Gelson gloomily stood up, stretched, and walked to the window. The sky was blank. Looking out, he realized that his uncertainties were over. Right or wrong, he had made up his mind. Tell me, he said, still watching the sky. What will the Hawks hunt after they get all the watchbirds? Huh? McIntyre said. Why, just to be on the safe side, you'd better design something to hunt down the Hawks. Just in case, I mean. You think? All I know is that the Hawks are self-controlled. So were the watchbirds. Remote control would have been too slow, the argument went on. The idea was to get the watchbirds and get them fast. That meant no restricting circuits. We can dope something out, McIntyre said uncertainly. You've got an aggressive machine up in the air now. A murder machine. Before that, it was an anti-murder machine. Your next gadget will have to be even more self-sufficient, won't it? McIntyre didn't answer. I don't hold you responsible, Gelson said. It's me. It's everyone. In the air outside was a swift-moving dot. That's what comes, said Gelson, of giving a machine the job that was our responsibility. Overhead, a hawk was zeroing in on a watchbird. The armored murder machine had learned a lot in a few days. Its sole function was to kill. At present, it was impelled toward a certain type of living organism, metallic like itself. But the hawk had just discovered that there were other types of living organisms, too, which had to be murdered. <laughs> Copyright is any bugger who wants it. <laughs> Next up is our very own Frederick Heimbach. Fred, sir, nice of you to join me on the sofa. Hello, sofa beings. It's the graphic fan here, Fred Heimbach. And on behalf of the peace-loving people of planet Earth, I bring you greetings. It's been a while since we last talked. And in that time, we've seen some big news. 
DC has shaken the comics publishing world with a reboot. DC has done reboots of various series before. There's nothing unusual about that. What is unusual, unprecedented really, is that this time it's a simultaneous cancellation of all titles and a reboot of 52 different series. This is an attempt to generate sales, of course. They hope that reboots, in some cases reboots of series that have maintained continuity for decades, will create an inviting jumping-in moment for new readers. All those issues number one came out, and the results are trickling in. Pre-sales were very strong. The meaning of the sales figures will be debated for some time, and I can't say for sure that those elusive new readers have been hooked. Now let's talk about the star of today's episode of The Graphic Fan, Jonathan Hickman. He is the source of the bulk of my graphic novel happiness of late. He's writing scripts for the ongoing Marvel series FF, that's what they call the Fantastic Four nowadays, and also S.H.I.E.L.D. He's also writer and sometimes artist for a number of series for Image Comics, including Pax Romana, Red Mass for Mars, Transhuman, the Red Wing, and the widely admired The Nightly News. I'll be reviewing two of those image series. I'll start with The Nightly News. Hickman hates big media companies. Really, really hates them. That's not so unusual. Here's what is unusual. Hickman's politics, which figure prominently in The Nightly News, do not fit any conventional category. His hatred is violent, far beyond my comfort, or probably yours. His vision of hatred got published by a mainstream comic book publisher. When I say violent, I mean Hickman depicts terrorists shooting Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather. These are fictional characters with other names, but it's clear who they really are. In Rather's case, we get to watch his brain turned into an aerosol. Hickman cannot completely hide his schadenfreude at these moments. Hickman knows that media conglomerates construct narratives and twist facts. He displays his political independence by criticizing the right-wing Fox News, along with older, more left-wing networks. He falters, however, because he won't point a way out of the current mess. In Hickman's telling, everyone is either a corporate tool, a terrorist, or an ineffectual anti-globalist protest ninny. He doesn't seem to know about the millions of people who stopped believing their TVs a long time ago. For this book, Hickman created his own highly stylized artwork that departs from the usual hand-drawn look of comics. His penchant for high-contrast graphic design and complex charts in addition to the paranoid content, have earned him the affectionate nickname The Unabomber by his editors. Reading the nightly news is an emotional whipsaw experience. You sympathize with Hickman's point of view, but then he flirts with the lunatic fringe. The story ends in despair, yet the appendix contains a political philosophy that aspires to, and kind of achieves, coherence. The one constant feeling is your faint relief that this is anything but the usual jumble of conventional politics disguised as a comic book. Pax Romana is similar to The Nightly News because it was published by Image and because Hickman supplied the graphics. 
It tells the story of a pope in the year 2053 who is dealing with bad news and good news. The bad news is that Islam has overrun Europe. The good news is that he has possession of the world's only working time machine. He tries to fix the bad news by sending a team of cardinals and warriors back in time to the Roman Empire of Constantine's day with the mission to build a Christian empire able to quash Islam and all other rivals. As you might guess, this plan does not end well. Hickman's violent sense of humor is on display once again, albeit at a lower volume. Plus, there's a Hickman-esque timeline that starts in the year 338 and brings us all the way up to a delicious dystopia 800 years later. I was hoping for more of a punch in the plot at the end, but I still enjoyed the mix of religion, politics, history, and speculative fiction. The book was way too short for me. Always a good sign. But enough of image comics. Let's look at Hickman's evil little brain as it interacts with the Marvel Comics mind space. S.H.I.E.L.D. is a Hickman series written for Marvel. It's like an image series, filtered for Marvel's wider, younger readership. This makes S.H.I.E.L.D. blander, but ensures it delivers its punches in more disciplined ways. I won't say if it's better or worse. I suspect Marvel is correct, however, to believe its own approach is more popular. S.H.I.E.L.D. tells an alternate history where all great scientists and scientific discoveries are turned up to 11. This is steampunk for the medieval set, with a dash of Hickman-esque paranoia. Galileo, Leonardo, Newton, and many others from 600 years of European science run around fighting giant robots, shooting death rays, wearing way-out armor, and organizing themselves into secret conspiracies complete with funky hats and pantaloons. I've read only the first volume, and it left me hungry for more. Ravenous, really. Okay, that does it for Hickman. Let's use our own time machine to go back in time a few months. Many months ago, I mentioned I was reading the comic series Planetary by Warren Ellis and John Cassidy, and I promised to review the whole thing once I finished all four volumes. Finally, that happy day has arrived. Those familiar with comics will recognize the names of writer Ellis and artist Cassidy as an A-team. These guys are steeped in comics art and history. They know the ropes, and they know the tropes. Obviously, they are having a blast as they ring the changes through various pulp genres. Science fiction? Aliens, spaceships, alternate universes? Mystery? Amnesia, and an even brief appearance by Sherlock Holmes. Horror, Lovecraftian monsters, Dracula. Edwardian adventure tales, an homage to Henry Ryder Haggard, plus lots of sapia-toned guys wearing goggles and jodhpurs. Planetary tells the story of Elijah Snow, a white-suited superhero of a certain age and of uncertain memories he's struggling to recover. He joins Chiquita Wagner, a woman of unnatural physical strength. There's a modern trope right there. A woman does all the heavy lifting. And a stoner dude named Drums, who reads data by tapping out rhythms with his drumsticks. At first, Drum seems kind of lame, but don't worry, his backstory is very interesting, like so much else in this complex tale. 
Snow needs to find out exactly what the organization called Planetary is, especially since he finds himself working for it. It's all very Baroque, bordering on Byzantine, and before the story is done, several iconic characters from the DC stable will be used, abused, and confused in gloriously irreverent ways. I wouldn't dream of giving away exactly who those characters are. It's irreverent, but not a farce. Author Ellis balances the emotional arc perfectly in this dramedy and delivers healthy doses of agony and ecstasy as well. Artist Cassidy can imitate art from a century's worth of pulp fiction with a deft hand, never sinking into mere caricature. Obviously, these pulp historians are laboring in love. Did I mention these guys are good? Okay, I've got two more titles to mention real quick. I love the title of the new one-off graphic novel, The Amazing Screw-On Head and Other Curious Objects, by Mike Magnolia, the creator of Hellboy. I'm almost prepared to recommend it purely based on its title and its funky pseudo-retro artwork. It's got Abraham Lincoln in a steampunk role, but that was actually my first disappointment. Lincoln makes only a cameo appearance. There's no evidence of any deep knowledge of Lincoln's character and no attempt to tell us something new about the president. The writing in general is shallow and impressionistic. At its low point, Mignola brings in a child author for one of the stories. The result is not nearly charming enough to justify its incoherence. Much better at that sort of thing is Essex County Volume 1, Tales from the Farm, by Jeff Lemire. Here, a comic by a nine-year-old is integrated seamlessly into the narrative of an orphan boy being raised in rural Ontario by his hopelessly inattentive uncle. Of these two, Essex County is the one you ought to read. That does it for this time. I'll see you for the next installment of The Graphic Fan. There you go, Frederick. Thank you very much, Squire. Now we have a little promo by Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I just wanted to tell you about a new project of mine. I have joined the faculty of the Mythgard Institute. Founded by Dr. Corey Olson, the man behind the popular Tolkien Professor podcast, the Mythgard Institute is a virtual institute dedicated to making a rigorous, dynamic, and interactive educational experience possible for students around the world through the latest online course tools. Students can take courses for the love of it or for credit toward a master's degree. In the 15-week spring 2012 semester, Dr. Olson will be the lead professor in the course The Making of Myth, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. I will be the lead professor for the course Taking Harry Seriously, The Artistry and Meanings of the Harry Potter Saga. I do hope you will check out the Mythgard Institute. Again, this is completely international and completely online and very interactive. Registration for the spring 2012 semester is open until January 13th, 2012. Please check us out at mythgard.org. That's M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D dot org. Thank you so much. 
And Amy is one busy girl. Do listen out for some new, very important announcements later on on that Meta Show, probably about myself and Amy H. Sturgis. There you go, that is it. Don't forget, send us in if you've got some ideas for anything. You know what I mean? Even just say hello. You know what I mean? I'm just stuck here by myself. You know what I mean? Say hello to us. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.